Let's jump right into it. Sorry, that could have been loud. All right, what's up, everybody? Today, we're going to talk all things blood sugar, um, and I want to kind of give you guys... Basically, I wrote down five things that I want to kind of talk about as subjects to kind of help mitigate blood sugar, why you should be aware of blood sugar, how this conversation actually evolved was, you know, I personally, for about six weeks now, I've been wearing a continuous glucose monitor, and prior to that, for two years, I was kind of doing the, uh, the little morning prick, and I would do that after meals, I would do it fasted, so I want to kind of jump into A, why you should be paying attention to blood sugar, and then B, the things that we're going to talk about, kind of the five things, five subjects, whatever I want to call it, are going to be the things that you guys should be doing and slash aware of to help mitigate blood sugar, right? So when you look at blood sugar to begin with, a lot of people think, okay, blood sugar and the generally the first thing that pops up out of people's head is going to be, you know, diabetics, type one, type two. Um, some people are even calling like Alzheimer's type three diabetic now. Um, but really what that is, is when you think about a type one diabetic as someone that doesn't produce enough insulin, type two is going to be a little bit more dietary and lifestyle related, something that you've created yourself, which the good news is if you are a type two diabetic, you can reverse that. Um, and it's not something that you need medication the rest of your life. It's something you need to be able to pay attention to lifestyle and um, dietary habits, right? So and then type three, obviously, I'm not going to get into any of that today. That's more Alzheimer's and that's kind of brain inflammation and brain, you know, whole different subject. So I personally got into it, um, measuring it probably about two and a half years ago. And prior to that, I would say I made some personal changes in diet and kind of meal timing, nutrient timing, probably about seven years ago now. So I kind of want to start with that story on why I started with it and give you a little background. And then we kind of just evolve this whole conversation from there. You know, I personally, mom, if you're listening to this, bless your heart. Uh, I grew up eating a lot of carbs. You know, I always like to tell people that the easiest way to feed three growing broys is just to give them a lot of rice or pasta or breads or kind of easy things there. And uh, not to knock my parents at all, but when it came to education and nutrition of knowing what's right, we grew up in an era that was, you know, we demonized fat and we ate a lot of processed foods like pastas, rice, cereals, things like that. So when I kind of got into my early 20s, I would say this is probably around 23 is where I really started to kind of notice some of these things. Um, is I started becoming very sensitive to how my body was handling carbohydrates, right? So I would have, you know, I'll give you a very typical American breakfast. I would go to, you know, the corner bakery with some people from Equinox and I would go get, you know, some eggs and some bacon or an omelet. And then I would like maybe a side of toast or some pancakes or something a little bit more carb rich. Even some days the good old, their cinnamon rolls were amazing. Um, and what I realized is by the time I would have breakfast about an hour and a half later, I feel like I needed a nap. Um, and there could be some background stuff, obviously, with sleep and some other things. But for the most part, at that age, I was getting enough to be able to function. Um, as I've gotten older, I realized I definitely need more sleep. But I'm going to kind of just remove that part of the conversation. And it was every single time I had a very, very carb-rich. And when I say carb, you know, I want you guys to kind of think about that, you know, fibrous carbohydrates, you know, the things that come from planet Earth, vegetables and fruits and things like that. Um, are going to be different than kind of some of the refined processed carbs, which would be things like the pancakes and cinnamon rolls I was just talking about, or, you know, rice or pasta or breads for some people, depending. Um, with those type of kind of refined processed foods, I realized that I would get really, really sensitive to a point where I felt like I needed a nap almost every time I had a very heavy carb meal. Um, and the more processed and refined it was on kind of the other end of the spectrum, the quicker and more dramatic the response was, right? So... 
looking and kind of reevaluating some of my own protocol, one of the first things I said is like, okay, well, more importantly for nutrition is we all look at nutrition as something that's either going to aid in performance or it's going to obviously improve body composition and aesthetics. Um, but at the end of the day, we really hope that it's also kind of aiding in health and feeling better because at the end of the day, you should, you know, you, you should feel amazing throughout the day. You should have very stable energy levels. And if you feel like you're up and down and you're chasing your high with coffee or tea or an energy drink, or you feel like you need to eat more carbs just to kind of get back up, you're what I call chasing the high. Um, and that's going to be something that's probably going to be based off blood sugar response, right? Meaning your variability of your blood sugar is probably all over the place, right? So to kind of give you a little bit more information on why blood sugar and why some of those kind of responses that I was talking actually happen is because when blood sugar goes up, so let's take the, you know, the cinnamon roll example. If I were to eat a cinnamon roll right now, what's going to happen is my blood sugar is going to go through the roof, right? And it's going to go straight up and it's going to come straight down, right? And the more, you know, kind of what I was saying earlier, the more processed and refined some of these foods are, the more dramatic the spike in the dip is, meaning it gets really, really high, but then it also, when it drops back down, it actually gets below baseline and it takes time to recover. If you are someone that's tracking blood sugar, definitely highly recommend it, but you want to look at the response rate, meaning like how adaptive is your blood sugar, because that's going to give you kind of a little bit of insight to how effective you are from an insulin sensitivity standpoint. Now, we want to be insulin sensitive, and here's why. Because when blood sugar goes up, your body goes, holy shit, we have a lot of sugar in the blood, right? Anything above 140 is going to be what we call is really toxic to the body. So your body releases a hormone called insulin. So the pancreas releases insulin. Insulin does its job of taking all the sugar out of the blood, and then it goes and it stores it into the muscle, and it stores it into the liver. Now, we have to remember there is a cap to how much you can store in muscle and or liver. So if we have reached the ceiling, what's going to end up happening is obviously your body is going to convert some of that into body fat, um, which is why we want to be paying attention to things that are highly palatable, highly you know, glycemic, because it's easier to overeat and there's kind of a whole, there's so much I can unpack from this, but it's easier to overeat. And obviously when we look at being in a caloric surplus, this is where your body ends up storing fat. So there is a lot of relationship to why managing blood sugar is a very, very effective tool for also, you know, managing weight loss and fat loss more importantly. So if we are healthy and we are sensitive with insulin, insulin will take the sugar right out of the blood. Your body will go up and it'll come back down. Now, I don't want people to think that we should never have you know, ice cream or cookies or sweets or processed food or bread or pasta ever again, I'm going to get into some of some of the management techniques today. But I want you to be aware that some of those foods you should really be paying attention to when you eat is how do you feel post meal, right? With the next 20 minutes and 30 minutes, how do you feel with the next hour, the next two hour, you know, does your energy stabilize? Does your energy feel like it goes really up and then it goes really down? You know, you really want to pay attention to some of those kind of subjective signs and subjective points, because that's going to give you an idea of how your body is actually handling certain types of food. Now, that being said, also, I want you guys to remember everyone's response rate and everyone's kind of response to blood sugar and insulin is very, very different. There's so much that goes into it between, you know, genetic disposition to activity level to, you know, lean body mass amount. Um, obviously, the foods you're eating, you know, the whole nine yards. So I don't want to get into kind of some of that stuff. I want to get into the management side. Okay. So. That is what ideally we're looking at as someone being healthy, as someone that is insulin sensitive. Now, insulin resistance is something that is becoming very, very popular, and that is a lot of dietary and lifestyle related kind of things. And here's what insulin resistance is. 
is when your body has constant, you know, like your blood sugar is constantly high, your body's always trying to release insulin, right? Now, insulin is kind of the hormone that is basically the key to unlock, you know, the cell to allow it to take in some of the blood sugar so that the muscle and the liver and or fat, depending on the context, um, takes in some of that sugar to store because it wants it out of the blood, right? Because it's very toxic. Now, if you're insulin resistance, the way that I always like to use this as an example is like if I look at the sun for five seconds and bring my eyes back down, I might see dots for a little bit, but I'll recover pretty fast from that. Now, if I were to go and stare at the sun for hours every single day, I eventually will go blind. Your body will become resistant to that. Now, this happens with any stimulus. does not matter what you're doing. If I gave you a workout to do and did the same workout the rest of your life, your body will adapt into a point where it becomes resistant to it and the results and the effectiveness stop. Right. So when you look at insulin resistance, a lot of that is based off uh, people eating very, very frequent meals that are highly palatable meals that are processed or they're doing a lot of drinks. And, you know, we'll get into some of that stuff with the management stuff. Um, and they constantly have these high blood sugar levels and they're going up and down and up and down. And if they're insulin resistance, they're going up and they're kind of staying a little bit higher than they should. So. That is what we look at as someone being healthy is we want them to be sensitive. We do not want them to be resistance, right? So in order to avoid insulin resistance, that is going to get us into what we talk about today, which are going to be kind of some of these five subjects and management techniques that you can use to mitigate blood sugar, right? So that was a very long-winded way as usual to kind of explain that. So coming back to my original story, when I started to change my breakfast and I made it a little bit more of based on protein and some healthy fats and cho choosing a little bit more fibrous foods, like maybe a cup of blueberries or maybe some spinach and mushrooms and an omelet kind of thing, I realized that I actually didn't have that same subjective need for, oh, I need a nap or I need another coffee. Um, and I was getting the same amount of sleep and I was in the same schedule, right? So I realized that the dietary choice of what I did in the beginning of the day made a huge impact on how I felt. Now, after years of doing enough research, I realized that this was me borderline becoming insulin resistant because my diet was very carb rich. I was eating a lot of shit food still at that age. You know, I was at an age and activity level where I probably could have got away with it metabolically, meaning my body composition wouldn't change. But I realized my energy was up and down and up and down and up and down. And I was always chasing this high. You know, now at 30 years old, I can't have foods like that all the time and feel good. Like there's no way like I or just expect my energy to become stable very fast. It's very dramatic for me. Um, as I've really nailed down my diet a lot over the last three to five years, I've become more insulin sensitive, which is good because if I do have carbs or I do have something that's a little bit more processed and refined, it's not as dramatic as it used to be. And I think that's because I've become a little bit more sensitive over time with insulin. Um, and effective with how I'm actually managing my blood sugar versus in the past where me always having blood sugar being a little bit high, you know, elevated throughout the day, I started to slowly become more resistant with insulin. Okay. So let's jump right into it. Number one, I wanted to talk about meal composition, right? Which is basically what I mean by this is the composition of your meals will dictate how your blood sugar responds. So in the keto world and the carnivore world, uh, this is a big kind of conversation is, when you're having something like protein, animal proteins for the sake of this conversation and healthy fats um, and even some type of fibrous foods, you don't get this blood sugar response like something that would be um, like pasta and breads and juices and coffees and energy drinks and protein bars and pro like anything that's processed refined, meaning it comes out of a box or a bag or has a barcode um, like juices are very different than fruit itself. 
So if I were to have an orange or I were to have orange juice, the orange juice is going to give me a very uh, high response on blood sugar because the glycemic variability is a lot higher due to the fact that the fiber is removed. So when it comes to food, this is not going to be rocket science, but at the end of the day, you've heard me say this in previous podcasts, if you eat food that comes from planet Earth, meaning it needs sun and water to grow, a.k.a. plants, you know, produce, that's going to be fruits, that's going to be vegetables, um, that's a good place to start with most of those things. And just to kind of open up the conversation with that, fruits do have different glycemic variabilities and so do vegetables. Meaning fruits with something like berries, raspberries, strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, um, they're not, they pretty much almost have little to no effect on blood sugar, right? So berries are always a great choice, especially for people that are looking for weight loss and fat loss as a goal, but also trying to keep some level of sweets there. The tropical fruits, the apples, the bananas, the pineapples, the mangoes, the ones that are probably a little bit more in season during summertime, those are a little bit higher in sugar content and in return a little bit higher on the glycemic variability scale. But if you're eating whole fruits, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, there's obviously going to be a certain extent, but there's not many people that I've worked with that go, yeah, you know what? The reason why I'm gaining weight is because I'm throwing like five pineapples back a day. Like no one really overeats on fruit. So when it comes from a whole food source, it's really easy to manage that or a lot more effective in managing that at least. When you're eating something that's processed, if I have like, I'll give you an example. I used to love these as kids, the dry mangoes. Dried mangoes are mango, so you would think, well, okay, it's a fruit, but dried fruit obviously is a very different response as well. Anytime I get anything away from its raw, natural source, it's a form of processing, right? So cooking is a form of processing, right? So a lot of times people get scared with the word processing, but there is kind of, there's levels to this shit for sure. <laughs> um, but I want you guys to remember that whole food at its natural, raw, organic state is a very, very different response than fruit juices or dried fruits or fruit bars or things like that. Um, I used to throw back probably like 10 servings of that dried fruit, those things that came in the bag. I forget the name of the company. So that's number one. When you look at vegetables too, on the kind of the other side of the produce you know, spectrum, we want to look at things that are above ground, like the leafy greens, and then we have root vegetables below ground. Root vegetables tend to be a little bit more glycemic because they're a little bit more carbon sugar rich. They're starchier. So things like potatoes have a very different response than things like asparagus. So yes, become a little bit more aware if you have a diet of weight loss and fat loss as a goal to be a little bit more cautious and conscious of what you're putting in your body when it comes to tropical fruits and root vegetables. When it comes to berries and leafy greens or above ground vegetables, you kind of almost in a sense have an unlimited access to. But whole food, natural selection, organic state food is going to be your best selection, best place to start with. Second thing is, is if it's walk, if it's flown or it's swam before, these are great foods because they're going to be high in protein and they're going to be high in natural occurring fat depending on the cut, depending on the meat. So if I'm having something like chicken breast, yes, little to no fat, just almost pure protein as a source. If I look at something like salmon or a sirloin, there's a lot of protein as well, equal to chicken breast, but it also comes with naturally occurring fats. When you look at just those things, and this is kind of something that I'm working on with like a nutrition masterclass that I'm building for our clients, I always tell people, let's keep the conversation and the focus around protein and produce. If you were to just focus majority or 80% of your diet on eating produce and eating protein coming from animal sources, meaning, hey, I have vegetables, I have fruits, and I have animal protein. Simple. Those foods do not have as dramatic of a blood sugar response compared to things that are in boxes, in bags, and have barcodes with them. 
anything that is processed, anything that is refined, anything that is blended, anything that is juiced, anything that is dried, anything that is cooked, they all will have a different response that tends to be more dramatic in a negative way, right? So we want to think about being conscious of those type of foods because those foods have a more dramatic response on blood sugar. Um, and as blood sugar goes up and the more dramatic the spike is, when you crash below baseline, these are where some of the cravings kick in. Now, here's one thing to think about. I've said this before, and I will say this a lot of times moving on for the future. Carbs and fats together are not ideal on how your body from like a metabolic pathway standpoint works. Having those foods all the time is going to be a recipe for disaster for weight loss, right? But that being said, some of the best foods in the world, you know, like I had a lobster Alfredo pasta the other night, or if you have pizza, if you have ice cream, these are foods that are high in carbs and fats. Um, a, there's a lot of research and science showing that it almost tricks the brain in for you eating a little bit more than you should because they're highly palatable foods. Um, and that in return, unfortunately, is not going to also just get you to overeat, but it's also going to get the blood sugar to go through the roof. And I'll give you a prime example just with the lobster Alfredo pasta I did the other night. My blood sugar went from like baseline of being like a, wherever I was, like 90, 100, something like that. And it shot all the way up to like 150 and then it came all the way back down to 70. And I still felt like I could have ate more and I probably ate four or five servings. Now that's not going to be ideal when we're looking at weight loss because we want to manage and we want to mitigate these spikes. So this way, these peaks and these valleys are less dramatic. So number one, when you look at kind of managing blood sugar, I always just kind of, it sounds straightforward, but focus on food that comes from planet earth, right? If it needs sun and water to grow, AKA produce, start with that as your baseline or your foundation of building plates. Number two, if it's walk, flown or swam before animal protein is a great source of protein and or fats, depending on the cuts. Um, and then whatever kind of fats you throw on top of that. So if I'm cooking with extra virgin olive oil or coconut oil or butter, you know, protein and fat have fat has the least amount of effect on blood sugar. Like if I were to eat like half a stick of butter, my blood sugar would probably barely change. Protein does have an effect on blood sugar, but it's not as dramatic as something like carbs. Carbs, remember the last one, they are the most dramatic on blood sugar, but remember there's two different camps. There's fibrous carbohydrates and there's complex kind of refined carbohydrates. You know, having a cinnamon roll versus a cup of blueberries, even if I ate the same amount of carbohydrates on blueberries, the response would be different, and that's a lot of it is due to the fiber, okay? Number two, how you eat and the order that you eat. This is a huge thing that I did a lot of, like, kind of personal research on, and this is actually one of the things that got me on to using the continuous glucose monitor because I wanted to kind of just test and hack some of these things so I can have a conversation like this with, you know, you guys or clients or even myself for own personal kind of hacking purposes, how you eat is very important. I've said this, and I think, uh, you know, a podcast back in November when I was focusing a little bit more on nutrition, that if I have, let's say, you know, I'm trying to think what we had the other night. Let's say I have like an arugula salad, you know, and then I make some steak and I have some rice. I think it was like steak, rice, and arugula salad. If I were to eat the rice first, the steak second, and the arugula salad last, and then the other person ate the arugula salad first and the steak second and the rice last... Even though it's the same meal, the blood sugar response would be very different, right? When you add the fiber and the fat and the protein first, the things that have the least amount, you almost, in a sense, this is kind of a weird way to think about it, almost like coat the gut and the stomach by getting some of that stuff, which is going to help mitigate some of the blood sugar. 
if I were to have all the white rice first, my blood sugar is going to go straight up. And even though I'm eating the exact same meal with the exact same calories, with the exact same macronutrients, the blood sugar response would be very different. So this was something and it was interesting because I read about it and I saw it from other people and I was like, okay, that's a, you know, it's a concept that makes sense to me, but I wanted to try it in real life to see how it worked. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's legit. <laughs> when I eat like a meal that is, and I try to eat, put the carbs first, my blood sugar goes up pretty dramatically. When I was eating something like where I would focus on the fiber and protein first and then have the carbs last, my blood sugar was not as dramatic. And another cool hack in the back end of that is naturally if you're someone that doesn't finish your plate, there's kind of two different people in camps for this one obviously. If you save the carbs for last and you eat the fiber and the protein first, you're at least getting the good shit in because a lot of people, and I used to be notorious of this as a kid, and for the parents listening to this, this is something with children to think about. Um, there is never a time where I left like pasta on the plate. Sometimes I leave some protein. Most of the time I leave a lot of vegetables there. But if I just eat in reverse, I'm saying, hey, you can still have pasta. You can still have your dessert. You can still have whatever. But I need you to make sure that you finish all your fiber and your protein first. A, you're going to have enough hunger to probably get through majority of that anyways. And the benefit of it is I'm not getting a dramatic blood sugar spike. So I'm mitigating blood sugar and I'm keeping it in a healthy range. So that was one cool little hack and trick that I want you guys to think about is how you eat. Eat fiber first. Eat your protein first. You don't need to have all of it. You know, I, that's one thing that kind of, you know, for me, I have OCD and I've always kind of like, I'm like, I don't want to not have my rice at all till I get to the end, but I just try to have majority of the fiber and the protein first before I start eating some of the rice, right? Because good way to kind of regulate blood sugar. Number three, timing of your meals, AKA eating late. Um, you have to remember that you're, you are more insulin sensitive in the beginning half of the day and you are less insulin sensitive at the second half of the day. And secondly, and not only on top of you being less insulin sensitive towards the later half of the day, most of the time you also are less active. So you have to remember that there's one of the ways to kind of manage blood sugar really effectively is not only paying attention to the composition of the meals, but is also like movement and exercise. When you have someone, you know, I did put this down because this is not, well, I mean, I guess I could talk about it here, but I didn't want to put it down as some kind of type of hack because it's something I just wanted to talk about in general. Someone that has more lean body mass, like muscle is very, very metabolic. It's metabolic machinery. So when you have someone that has a lot of muscle mass, they tend to be a little bit more insulin sensitive, which is why weight training and training and aerobic training also itself are so effective for managing blood sugar, right? But second is movement after meals is a great way to actually mitigate blood sugar as well because the movement is going to start to kind of shuttle some of those nutrients and shuttle some of those sugars into the muscles that they actually need the fuel for. So when you're looking at kind of like uh, eating, one of the biggest tips, and I've said this multiple times on Instagram and podcasts before, is like a post-walk meal. Eating right after a meal is a great way for you to mitigate blood sugar. And it's a great way for you to say, hey, with your significant other or your roommates, um, if you're someone that really is trying to lose weight or stuck or feel like they're in a plateau with weight loss, these little tips and hacks make a big difference. Now, it's not easy for most people to be moving when it's eating at 8 o'clock at night, right? So this kind of comes back to the original part. When I say the timing of your meals, here's one thing that I've noticed over the last six weeks of measuring at 24-7. When I have, I tend to eat a little bit bigger of meals probably 80% of the time at night. And what I realize is, you know, breakfast or lunch, even if I do have not the best meal every time, my blood sugar will go up at a response like the how – adaptive it is, is still pretty effective. Meaning it goes up and it goes down, but it comes back to baseline pretty quick. And that's a sign of, you know, healthy response to blood sugar. 
But what I've realized at night is it takes almost four or five hours to recover. So if I have a late meal, so let's say I don't finish dinner till like 8 p.m., sometimes it shows that it doesn't really even recover back to its original baseline till like 2, 3. Sometimes I've even seen it at 4 a.m. before it actually gets back down to baseline. And naturally, I'll wake up almost 10 points higher on my blood sugar when I have a huge carb meal. So that kind of pasta night the other night was a perfect example. It went up because we had dinner around 7 o'clock. It never recovered till like 2. That's 7 hours of my blood sugar being a little bit higher than it should. Right now that also affects sleep and the stages of sleep, because guess what? My body is not only working on digesting the food and blood sugars high, which is going to hinder some of these more restorative stages of sleep, which is not to get ahead of myself, going to be the fourth part of what we talk about anyways today. So when you look at the timing of your meals, you know, there's a lot of people that ask me about intermittent fasting, you know, and with thinking about the whole concept of skipping breakfast or moving your first meal back. I actually think, and there's actually some research starting to come out on this, that it's more effective for us to move dinner backwards than it does than it is for us to move breakfast backwards, right? So if you're normally eating at 8 p.m. and going to bed at 10, maybe try having dinner around 7 and then going to bed at 10, 10, 30, right? Like we ideally want to have about two to four hours. Now, it's different per person, but I'm just going to tell you through my own personal experience of measuring it that I've noticed that the later I eat and the more carb-rich that dinner is or the bigger that meal is, it takes hours for it to recover versus if I were to have that same pasta meal and I were to have it at lunch, which is a perfect example because I ate it the next day for leftovers, the response was you know up and down, but it wasn't dramatic and it didn't last more than an hour and a half. So there's a huge, huge difference on how your body actually responds to blood sugar elevation when you're eating late versus eating in the morning and the lunch, right? So if I were to give you guys kind of a little pro tip of the day, if you are someone that due to their schedule or job can't not eat early, then I would try to really focus on, once again, some of the foods that have less response. So maybe making your dinner a little bit more focused around vegetables and proteins and healthy fats and kind of removing some of maybe these processed refined carbs. So no rice or no pasta or no breads or, you know, no things that are maybe super glycemic because your body will take a longer time to respond to that which is also going to affect some of those deeper stages of sleep. And that's kind of a, a negative feedback loop that we fall into, right? So that going to lead me kind of into part four. Part four is how does stress and how does sleep affect blood sugar? This was super, super interesting to me because I noticed it for the first time is the days. So two weeks ago, three weeks ago, whatever it was that when we were trying to go to Tahoe, well, the day after Christmas, whatever the date is on that. Um, it was a super stressful day because not only did we never make it to Tahoe, we spent nine hours in the car and after rerouting and stopping for lunch and, you know, waiting for the roads to open back up. Like I personally hate being in a car long when I'm stuck in traffic. So traffic already makes me frustrated, but on top of road closures and ruining our week long vacation that we had planned, I felt stressed all day. Like I just felt, you know, irritated. I felt on edge. And when I got home that night and I've like kind of measured my blood sugar, scanned it, my blood sugar was borderline almost like 130, 140 throughout the day. Now to give you guys an idea, I normally like will wake up around like 85, a bad morning would be like 105, but I'd say 85 to 90 kind of being a good range for me when I wake up. Um, some mornings lower, some mornings higher, depending on kind of how the previous day was. And then throughout the day, I naturally will hang around like, you know, 100, 110, 115 is kind of the average. If I have a meal, obviously it goes, go, goes up, goes down. But when I was stressed, my blood sugar was high all day long. And here's why this happens. 
when your body is stressed, it's obviously releasing stress hormones, right? Cortisol, adrenaline, neuronephrine, all these hormones spike up. And when your body is stressed, it does not know the difference between you being stuck in a car trying to go to Tahoe for nine hours or you being yelled at by your girlfriend or your boss or you being chased by a mountain lion. Your body doesn't know the difference. It's just stressed. So when these hormones are high, it's trying to fuel the body to fight. Doesn't know what you're fighting, but it's trying to fuel the body for fighting. So that's why blood sugar goes up, right? When you're sick, your blood sugar goes up. When you're stressed, your blood sugar goes up. And guess what? When your blood sugar is elevated, you are going to feel the difference, right? Your cravings will change, right? The foods that you actually prefer are going to change. So when we look at managing blood sugar, we also really need to understand that managing stress and sleep are foundational items to having healthy blood sugar, right? So I got my blood tested about probably six months ago now, and the only marker that was in the red was my cortisol, and cortisol is a stress hormone. I am a very type A personality. I like to go, go, go. I never do things fast enough. I'm always trying to you know, work on meditating has been a big thing over the last couple of years um, and slowing myself down and trusting the process and not needing to lose and freak myself out if I'm not doing things fast enough. But my cortisol being high is also probably why my fasting glucose, why I originally started kind of taking this more serious over the last six months, was I was I was not in the red, but I was kind of in the borderline of getting out of the healthy zone, right? So, and I realized that it's actually less about my dietary habits than it was my stress, right? So as I've worked on managing stress more and the days when I actually feel really good and I'm not stressed out, I'm telling you it's a night and day difference between where my blood sugar average is for the day. So that's a huge thing, right? And that kind of like the same conversation of sleep, when, and this is kind of in relationship to stress. If you do not sleep well, you will see that your recovery from these blood sugar spikes the next day is going to be very different. But more importantly, your cravings. If anybody slept three or four hours and then went to work or went somewhere, you feel like you're craving coffee. You feel like you're craving salty food. You feel like you're craving carbs because your body's trying to chase a high. It's trying to make up for what you didn't do. So recovery and restorative stages of sleep is super, super, super important. So if you are stressed out or you're not getting enough sleep, I'm going to tell you everything else that I'm talking about today will be ineffective because those are the foundational items, right? Because when the stress hormones are elevated, blood sugar in return will be elevated. And this is why you're kind of get stuck in a negative feedback loop for the people that are insulin resistant or diabetic. If you're stressed out, your body's always trying to put blood sugar into the blood or sorry, it's trying to always basically, you know, your blood sugar is going to go up because it's trying to use that as fuel. Now, insulin's job is to take sugar out of the blood. So you have two things that are counterintuitive that are always working against each other. So what happens is you become insulin resistant due to the fact that the stress hormones are high. Right. So no matter how much you try to dietary wise, try to fix yourself, you have to address the stress and the sleep as a foundational item. Right. And this is why it's in the six dimensions for me. This is why it's such an important piece. Um, and the last one I want to just kind of a really quick one for everybody is like avoiding the very, very frequent snacking or drinking throughout the day, because we want there to be times of, you know, between feasting and famine, there want to be recovery periods, right? This is why I think intermittent fasting is such a great tool for so many people. Maybe not everybody, but at the end of the day, the way I always like to look at it is everyone's fasting to a certain extent. And even if it's only the time when you're not sleeping, that's still eight hours of not eating. Uh, but during the day, a lot of people that I work with, they're eating, you know, three meals a day, then they have a couple snacks, and they have a frappuccino, and then they have a fills, or they have a Red Bull, and they're always putting something into the system, and they spend, you know, 12, 14, 16, even 18 hours, some people, with having sugar, and their blood sugar, I'm sorry, elevated. 
Now, when it comes to weight loss, the last thing I want to just wrap up today with is insulin is a very, very anabolic hormone. So when blood sugar is high, it takes sugar out of the blood and places it into the muscles and the liver. Now, anabolic is a growth hormone, right? Now, that's not something to be scared of, but you also need to remember this. When insulin is high, the body's ability to burn fat is really, really ineffective, right? So if your goal is to be able to lose fat, we have to optimize hormonal function. So we want to minimize how much we're releasing insulin throughout the day. So if you're someone that's been told that I should snack six times a day, here's the thing. You can get away with eating more frequently if you're still in a deficit. That is the only kind of disclaimer I'll throw out there. Um, majority of the people, unfortunately, are not still in a deficit. So that's kind of a whole other story to unpack. So really focusing on just two or three, more importantly, good hearty meals is the only time that you're actually eating. And when you're having these, if you are having drinks, trying to not have them be filled with a bunch of crap. So if I'm having coffee with, you know, light cream and a little bit of honey, for example, that that's something that I drink, that's not super effective on blood sugar. But if I go get a Frappuccino or a Mocha Tesoro with a bunch of sugar in it and a bunch of cream in it, that is going to have a bigger dramatic effect on it. Um, and you will feel like you're kind of always chasing your tail and chasing your high, like I was saying earlier. So I hope that's, uh, I know it's kind of a little bit longer today, but those are, you know, the five areas that you guys can work on to kind of optimize and manage blood sugar because when you learn to mitigate blood sugar it's much easier to control fat loss and weight loss it makes it more effective and it makes it more sustainable because you don't want to feel like you're always fighting hunger all the time and it's really hard and super challenging like it should get to a point in a place hopefully after a few weeks and maybe even months of being consistent with something where it feels super manageable and you're not running into these cravings all the time. And if you are fighting cravings, most of the time it's because your blood sugar looks like a roller coaster ride. It's straight up, it's straight down, it's up all throughout the day, you know, super stressed, not getting enough sleep, your body's never recovering from it, and your blood sugar is gonna be a lot higher than it should be. Um and so not to get into any of the health stuff, I'm gonna tell you right now, elevated blood sugar is the reason where a lot of diseases started because glycation becomes a thing. So for women that are trying to maybe focus on removing wrinkles, you don't wanna have high blood sugar because things are glycating inside of your body, right? Um, and things are oxidizing at a different rate. So really managing blood sugar is a really, really important tool when you look at managing health and your well-being and your energy um, and just overall vitality, right? All right, guys. Well, I'll cut it off there. I know that was probably plenty long enough. Uh, for those that are listening on Friday, have a great weekend. And everyone else, I will talk to you next week. Take care.